Living a well-balanced lifestyle goes beyond ensuring your finances are in order. Welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara speaks with wellness industry leaders and related professionals to share more than financial planning advice. She addresses your questions about living a healthy lifestyle at any age. Learn how to gracefully maneuver life's challenges with support and resources to guide you along the way. Barbara and the team at Hightower help you make a plan, make an investment, and make a difference in your own wealth and well-being, and in your families, and within your community. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Now, on to the show. Hello, I'm Barbara Archer, your host for Keeping the Well in Wealthy, where we discuss living a healthy lifestyle and offering support and resources to gracefully maneuver life's challenges at any age. So what do you know about Parkinson's disease? Did you know that Parkinson's disease, or PD, is the second most common neurodegenerative disease after Alzheimer's? In the U.S., nearly 90,000 people are diagnosed annually, and there are about a million people living with PD. This is expected to rise by about 20% by 2030, and there is a new diagnosis every six minutes. The combined direct and indirect costs of Parkinson's disease, including treatment, social security payments, and lost income, is estimated to be nearly $52 billion per year in the U.S. alone. Today, we will learn more about this disease, the risk factors, how it is diagnosed and treated, and how patients and caregivers can be prepared to deal with physical and mental changes over time. So I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Michael Oaken, MD, the former chair of neurology and currently distinguished professor and director of the Norman Fixell Institute for Neurological Diseases at the University of Florida Health, a one-stop, patient-centered, clinical research experience for national and international patients seeking care. Dr. Oaken has served as the National Medical Director and Advisor for the Parkinson's Foundation since 2006. His research has been wide-ranging, and he is best known for his exploration and innovation in neuromodulation and deep brain stimulation. Michael has published over 400 peer-reviewed articles in his book, Parkinson's Treatment, 10 Secrets to a Happier Life, was translated into over 20 languages. His most recent books are Ending Parkinson's Disease and Living with Parkinson's Disease. Dr. Oaken was recognized in a 2015 White House ceremony by the Obama administration as a champion of change for Parkinson's disease. Welcome, Michael. We appreciate you taking time to help us understand Parkinson's disease today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you today, Barbara. Well, thanks. Now, how did you choose to professionally focus on Parkinson's disease and then to become involved with the Parkinson's Foundation? Well, you know, these these stories have interesting turns. You know, when I went to college, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a history teacher. And so history is one of my first loves. But as I went through college and I began to take courses and spend some time with graduate students and, and really got immersed in it, my mentor said, you know, you should do something else with your life. And a lot of people weren't as happy in that profession at that time. And, and I thought, well, 
you know, I'm a Jewish kid, so maybe I'll be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. That's what my dad <laughs> told me I was destined to do. So I chose one of those three and I figured I'd go out into the community and be a black bag family practice doc, help as many people as I could. I had no conception of the brain or neurology. And when I went to medical school, I fell in love with the brain and it just made sense to me, all these pathways and circuits. And when everybody else was freaking out, I was saying, this is the coolest thing ever. (laughs) So that is my story and how I got into brain. And I've always been fascinated by people that have extra movements, tremors, eye blinks, funny movements, walking. And I've always thought, gosh, why is that? And, And it's that why, like leaning into those things that really bring a lot of curiosity. And so I think that's what drew me to Parkinson's disease. Well, that is fascinating. Please explain what Parkinson's disease really is and how it affects the body. Yeah. So what happens in Parkinson's disease is it's a degeneration. And when we say degeneration, that means that cells and circuits and connections between the cells, so the pipes, are actually becoming sick and they're beginning to die off or they're not functioning at as high of a level as they should be. And so the merchandise isn't sending those signals normally through those pipes. And what happens is that multiple circuits begin to degenerate over time. So they worsen over time. And as they worsen, certain types of cells die off. And one of those is a little cell called a black cell, which is a cell that has a chemical called dopamine. And a lot of people know Parkinson and dopamine together. And then as you begin to lose these cells and some of the other circuits, you can get symptoms. So they can be symptoms like tremor, stiffness, slowness, walking problems, but also you can be in the circuitry for other things like depression, anxiety, sexual dysfunction, Mm. sleep. And so it is a very complex disease and it's one that doesn't have one cause. So we see lots of different forms of Parkinson and they they say, and I know it's a bit of a cliche, you met one person with Parkinson, you met one person with Parkinson. But (laughs) That's a great line. It is a very protean, very different disorder across folks. And so we we have to, you know, really think hard when we're when we're both treating folks and when we're trying to adapt and develop new techniques and therapeutics for them. Since it is such a complicated disease, each person exhibits different symptoms. How do you diagnose PD? It's really, it's interesting. And here's one that might be your shocker of the day. Of course, we still have some more time to talk. So there might be some other ones hidden in here, but it turns out that we still examine the person with Parkinson's disease. And so I know that sounds in the modern world like, oh my gosh, you know, like, so you still see a doctor, preferably a, a neurologist. And there are a small number of people who have training, you know, in a specialty called movement disorders. And we actually look at your symptoms. We look at how you respond to medications like dopamine replacement therapy, and we look at how you progress over time. And that's sort of the way that we standardly make the diagnosis of Parkinson. Now, as we've you know improved in our research, and as we're beginning to change the world, the world is, sh- is shaking, the tectonic plates are moving in Parkinson, we're now beginning to develop blood biomarkers 
imaging, so pictures that we take, like MRI scans and things like that. We can measure things like dopamine in the brain. And so looking at these, we're beginning to better understand and to try to create what are called biological classifications. So beyond the clinical, meaning as we examine an individual person, how we think of their diagnosis. But it is still very important that you see a person that has some expertise, a neurologist, get that exam and that they follow you over time to make sure you're having the right response and you actually do have Parkinson's disease because there are other things that also look like Parkinson's. Well, I was going to ask, when you hear about tremors or even slowness or limb stiffness, I mean, can that be confused with other, other diseases? So that person going on to WebMD is going, oh my gosh, I have Parkinson's and perhaps not. 100%. And one of the things that that I learned early in my career, I, I served a role for the Parkinson Foundation called Ask the Doctor. And so I got to answer tens of thousands of questions from every continent except for Antarctica. Well, there might have been a question from Antarctica, but I'm not, not aware of one. But the point is that when people would write in and people would write to me, and still even today, people write to me and they write to other people that have some expertise in this area. I'm not alone. There are lots of really smart people out there working in Parkinson. And they ask that question. A lot of them end up not having Parkinson. And they think just because they have a tremor means mm -hmm. they have Parkinson. And in fact, here's another mind-blowing fact for you, Barbara. One in five people with Parkinson don't have tremor. And so we often miss the diagnosis of Parkinson because they may not actually have a tremor as part of their Parkinson disease. Oh. And so there so are that's actually, not always a given. It's not always a given that you don't you can have Parkinson without tremor or you can have Parkinson with tremor. And there are a whole bunch of different tremor disorders, you know, dozens of different tremor disorders that can look like Parkinson. And so it is important not to assume that you have Parkinson by going online and reading about it. Although my philosophy, Barbara, is is I actually like it when people, you know, go and read as much as they can, but then they come and they get their exam and we talk about it and we have shared decision making. And I often tell people, look, I'm like your cabinet advisor. I'm here to give you the best advice I can. I don't tell people what to do, but I'll give you the best advice that I can. And I'll never get mad at you if you don't do what I say you're going to do. You know, it, it might be best for you because who am I to say that everything has only one answer to it? And so the practice of medicine is very humbling. And I think it's important, particularly in the field of Parkinson, that we work with people to create plans that are going to work for their lives and to create value for them and meaning for them. And so we're here as like guides to help them on their journey. Well, since not everyone has tremors, you said about 20% of them don't. What's the differences between those movement-related or motor symptoms versus non-motor symptoms? What other things might be expressed? Yeah, so there are fundamental differences in the circuits in the brain. So if you think well, if you're an engineer and you love like, you know, how circuits work, you can you can just think there's one circuit that's that's pushing your movements, but there's another circuit that helps your eyes to move. And then there's a circuit that helps you to behave in a certain way. And then another one that helps you to think. And so depending on which circuits in the brain have what's, what we call pathology, but just really means that there's some disease or there's something wrong with that circuit. And so it's not able to communicate between the different islands in a normal way. When we have those abnormalities, depending on where the abnormality is, it tells you in the brain kind of what the dysfunction is and where the dysfunction is. 
and different Parkinsonian syndromes, different things that look like Parkinson disease, different tremor disorders may have hints, may have clues in the way that we examine people about where and which circuit is abnormal. And one of the most common disorders that people confuse with Parkinson is called tremor or essential tremor. Okay. And this is when people have trouble reaching for things and then it actually gets in the way of their ability to do things. So they are deliberately and intentionally trying to make a movement. And as they do that, these oscillations, these vibrations get in the way. In Parkinson's disease, the most common type of tremor is actually a resting tremor. And when you intend to do things, it actually calms down and goes away. And so it's important to, mm. um, to be able to look at these subtleties to make sure that you appreciate what the differences are. And then, of course, you don't want people walking around thinking they have something that you know wrong with them and actually they're okay. And then here's another secret for you, Barbara. Everybody has tremor. I have tremor. You have tremor. We all have a little baseline, what we call physiological. It happens normally. Our hands will tremor. And if, if you make a student really nervous, you know, by asking them a lot of questions, you can bring out a little bit of tremor. So you can actually have tremor normally. You can have tremor because you take a whole list of medications. Maybe you take 12 different medications and three of them drive that enhanced physiologic tremor. And we see a little bit more tremor. Or and too so much I, coffee. Or too much coffee, mm -hmm. right? You know, although... We have learned recently, here's here's another great little factoid. We have learned that in moderation, coffee is actually good symptomatically for Parkinson's disease. Now, you want oh. to drink five cups of coffee, but in that type of tremor, it doesn't tend to make the tremor worse at kind of low to medium dosages. Of course, if you have six or eight cups, you can drive anybody's tremor sure. up. But with a different disorder, a different tremor disorder, that may not be the case. And so understanding that, you can tell people, hey, look, if you have Parkinson, you can still have your coffee. It's good for you. That's good. That's a good message. And That's so, a good message. Thank you. For oh, that. boy. And it's so important to make sure that we have the right, you know, the right answers for people so we can help them to create the right strategies for their lives so they can enjoy their lives and they can find meaning and purpose in their lives, even though they have a disease like Parkinson. So what are some of the non-motor symptoms we might look for? So the most common unaddressed hurdle in Parkinson's disease is depression, okay? And okay. it's not as much like the depression that, you, that you're thinking about. You read the Wall Street Journal or you watch TV and you certainly you're thinking, oh my gosh, there's a psychiatrist and there's somebody in a couch and you know, they're talking about your childhood and everything. No, in Parkinson's disease, it's a little different. And what happens is that people can get sad. They can get full-on depression like that. But a lot of times, because of the chemicals in their brain, there's less dopamine and there's also less chemicals like norepinephrine and serotonin. And so they will experience a lot of the symptoms of depression and it might sneak up on people because it may not be as obvious, but it is there and it's very common and affects the majority of people. We also see very high rates of apathy, okay? So, so where you're not engaging in things uh, as much. Anxiety is another non-motor symptom. Sleeping dysfunction. And if you don't sleep well the night before, you're going to have a terrible next day, whether or not you have Parkinson or not. And so these are things that we need to pay attention to. And one of the things that we always talk about with these non-motor features of Parkinson is that many of them are treatable. And when you go to a neurologist or you go to a doctor, they're not thinking about treating those things. They're thinking, oh, let that let a mental health professional, let somebody else treat them. We have to teach folks 
to recognize these symptoms because they're treatable. And guess what? The research that we've done, the research that other people have done, it has shown that those symptoms, depression, anxiety, sleep deprivation, actually impact quality of life more than tremor. Oh my they gosh. impact quality of life more than tremor and more than the movement symptoms. And so we tend to ignore them. But hey, if we actually treated these things, we can really improve people's quality of life. So one of the humbling things that I've learned over the years is how important it is to recognize those symptoms and to address them because they make a huge difference in the quality of folks' lives. Thank you for that important information. And I've read that genetics causes about 10 to 15% of all Parkinson's, but what are some of the other risk factors? Yeah, so that's true. And speaking of that, it's kind of a bit mind-blowing to think, okay, so only 10, 15% of these cases have a genetic yeah. cause. So what is causing the rest of right. Parkinson's disease, right? It's crazy. And and it is. It's sort of a it's sort of one of these things that we have to really step back and think about it and be humbled by it. And you know, we now believe that there are genetic factors and environmental factors. And there's these old sayings that back to a professor in University of California that used to say the gene loads the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. And we mm -hmm. are now sort of really appreciating how much environmental factors are important. And Ray Dorsey and I and Boston Bloom and Todd Scherer wrote about this in Ending Parkinson's Disease and looked at a lot of these factors that you know 10 20 years ago people weren't paying attention to them but but pesticides like paraquat chemicals and dry cleaning like TCE these all increase the risk of parkinson disease and so we start to put two and two together and realize oh my gosh there are a whole bunch of things that we're doing that we may be exposing ourselves to that may be creating a worse generation for our kids and for the next generation after that. And so certainly we think about and we've written about this idea of the industrial revolution being an amazing thing, but there's also the downstream effects from all that sure. industrialization. We got to clean the water. We got to make sure the environment is, we got to breathe clean air. And we didn't realize, oh my gosh, these things not only tie to cancer, but they also tie to degenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Oh my gosh. Well, what about people in sports or if they've been in accidents, if they've had any kind of head injury, does that impact the possibility that they could get Parkinson's from having been associated with a brain injury? It's the same story with environment. So we talk about environment and pesticides and chemicals. People say, oh, maybe, and you see one study 20 or 30 years ago, and now there's two, and then there's four, and then there's eight, you know, and then you start mm -hmm. to see this convergence of data that says, you know, drip, 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 wait a minute, I think we're onto something here. Same story, Barbara, in traumatic brain injury or concussions. Concussions are related. They are a risk factor to people later coming down with Parkinson's disease. You have a higher risk factor when you're exposed to severe concussions than when you do not. And so we're learning now how important that is. We're also in corollary, I know we're talking about Parkinson's, but we're also learning how important head injuries are to causing changes in the brain that look like Alzheimer's, but aren't Alzheimer's, these chronic mm -hmm. traumatic encephalopathy. You see them in sports players, but a lot of people hit their heads from other things besides sports as well. And so repetitive head injuries 
and degenerative disease and setting off these cascades, these circuits that sort of go in the wrong direction and end up causing degeneration or dying off of some of these cells in the brain can happen after exposure to things. And so I'm glad that you brought that up because it turns out that hitting your head is not a good thing, you know, short right. and, and long term. And when, if you have a kid, we're also now learning that repetitive head injuries are not a good thing. And, and we need to do better and to protect people, you know, from these potential risk factors. What about geographic distribution, where you live? Will that have any impact with yeah. environmental factors? Just yeah. So Ray Dorsey, um, who's at the University of Rochester, really a, a leader in this area. And and he and other researchers like Allison Willis, who works at the University of Pennsylvania, and Carly Tanner, who works at the University of California in San Francisco at their VA system, have for years been looking at these diagrams of Medicare recipients, where people live, and then trying to count the number of people with Parkinson. And so recently, they actually discovered that we have been undercounting the number of people with Parkinson. So there, so if you do the math, and people like love these little quippy things, they can, you know, they can sound bite. The great sound bite used to be every one person is diagnosed with Parkinson every nine minutes. Now we've revised that because we were undercounting to one every six minutes. But if you actually read the papers that have come out recently on that, they also have overlays of where the people are, where they live. And it turns out there are hot spots for Parkinson disease. And you say, wait a minute, like how could there be hot spot? And even when you control, you know, because some areas are rural and some areas are not. And then you start to look like in the Mississippi and Arkansas Valley, and you start to look where there's been a lot of industrialization. You start to throw over the maps of Paraquat and where some of these things are and where TCE and then all these super fun sites where people need to go clean and you start to say, wait a minute, maybe mm -hmm. there is an environmental impact. The evidence is beginning to converge. And I would say like, if it was the Bible, it would be the story of, you know, we'd still be on Genesis. So we've still got a few chapters here to write, <laughs> but you know, like, you know, the evidence is starting to converge that it might matter like where you live and what you've been exposed to. Thank you for that. What are the current treatment options and how do they vary based on, are there stages or severities of the disease? I don't know how fast it progresses. It's really important. First of all, when you give the diagnosis of Parkinson and you tell somebody you have Parkinson disease, okay, when you say those four words, you have to remember, they're going to remember those words for the rest of their lives. And so we have to do a better job when we diagnose and what that means. And we actually looked into, you know, what that means for folks and people interpret this as meaning you have Alzheimer's disease or you have ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease or a brain tumor. You know, understanding what you have and what you don't have is really important. Second thing is, is, is that understanding right out of the gate that Parkinson isn't the worst disease that you can have and that it turns out there are actually a lot of treatments for Parkinson. And one of my friends, Matt Stern at University of Pennsylvania, he tells this story of the fortune teller and the fortune teller has this deck of cards, right? And he says, Barbara, pull a card out of the deck, you know, and that's going to be what you get. So you pull out the card and you say, oh, I got Parkinson disease. And she says, wait a minute, Barbara, you can keep Parkinson's disease. You can keep that card or you can put it back in and you can choose one more card, but you're going to keep the disease that you get. 
And Barbara thinks about it and she says, hmm, you know what? I think I'm going to stick with Parkinson's disease, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's actually treatable and there are a lot of options. So that's a long way for me to tell you, to get you to the point, to tell you that there are so many things that we have. There are so many medications. There are so many behavioral things that we can do for Parkinson's disease. And we also have surgical options and new clinical trials and things that can really change the way that people live in certain forms of Parkinson. Remember, I told you it's not one disease right, can actually right. go on for decades. I think when you give that diagnosis and you begin to follow somebody, you need to create a plan, create a strategy for them so they can have access to all of these things. And when their windows of opportunity open up, each of the treatments, whether it's a behavioral treatment, whether it's a medical treatment, whether it's a surgical treatment, when those windows open up, you're ready to kind of make sure that they get the things that they need. And we've had many folks that we follow for decades with the disease. And so it's important to realize that these types of treatments are available. They change over time. We have to see people frequently. Getting some expertise on this can matter in terms of how you're going to do with this disease. Do you typically start with a medication to replace the dopamine, or is there something similar to that to help? So here's another surprise for you, Barbara. The first thing that most Parkinson experts will do now after making the diagnosis is prescribe exercise. It turns out exercise is kind of like miracle Grow. I don't know if you've ever used miracle Grow. Oh, of course. Here. Yeah, you throw the miracle Grow on it. Of course, it's probably not good for Parkinson. might increase your risk of Parkinson. But <laughs> using that example, going along with that example, when you exercise, it's like miracle Grow. It's giving you some chemicals to help those cells to grow. And we're now realizing that there are real benefits to being able to exercise and have a really great strategy and regimen from the get-go. And so exercising every day, 7,500 steps a day, bicycling and a recumbent bike, other forms of exercise that might or may not be appropriate depending on what your bones and joints and things can tolerate and your other medical conditions, super important. And that's where we start the conversation these days. Things have changed over the decades. I'm in my third decade now on Parkinson. We start with exercise. Then there are our different classes of medications, okay, that we can add on. So we can think about medicines that make dopamine more available. They have big names like monoamine oxidase inhibitors. We can replace dopamine. We can tickle dopamine receptors. And we have to do this hmm. in the right cocktail for the right person at the right time. And at the same time, we have to, in parallel, make sure that people are stretching every day, that they are seeing a physical, occupational speech and swallow therapist. And then as they need access to other people, maybe they do need access to a, a neuropsychiatrist or to counseling therapies or to having a licensed clinical social worker, we get that team behind them. So we build that strategy. We build that plan for them. And so we're able, as the disease changes, remember it's a slowly progressive disease, then we adjust and we, we dip and we turn and we were able to adjust the medications. And over time, some people will move from different formulations of medicines to different cocktails, to different timing, to surgical therapies, and then to some of the newer types of therapies that are in clinical trials. So it is really a commitment between 
the folks that are taking care of you when you have Parkinson and making sure you can get them to have a good strategy and be checking in with someone that has some expertise. And remember, we have to think in the healthcare system, there's a shortage of people like me that have had training and know these things. And so figuring out ways, and I think a lot now, and as we're writing our next book, we're thinking a lot about how are we going to scale these things? We tell people to do all these things, but how practical is it for them to be able to do these things, get a plan and figure out how to scale and take the knowledge and make sure we can take care of these people. And now one in every six minutes, somebody's getting Parkinson's disease. Oh, so wow. super important. Excuse the interruption. I know you're listening to Hightower's Keeping the Well and Wealthy podcast. But if you have questions related to these or other wellness and financial issues, please reach out to your advisor or go to hightoweradvisors.com to find a financial advisor near you. Now, back to Barbara. You've blown up some of my thoughts about Parkinson's disease already. Are there other common misconceptions that many of us maybe just have and shouldn't? Yeah, I think one of the most common misconceptions is that Parkinson's disease is not treatable. A, a very common misconception, you know, about it. Second, that people with Parkinson's disease, you stick a fork in them, they're done. They can't be members of society. You know, I can tell you that I've treated people. We follow over 18,000 people at the University of Florida. And I can tell you that people have from CEOs to Main Street America still working, still doing things. Now, of course, there are challenges with Parkinson's disease. I don't want to erase that there aren't challenges. But this idea that you can't live, that you can't live a meaningful life with Parkinson's disease is something that really should be challenged. And if you think about it, Barbara, remember I told you those four words, you have Parkinson's disease, how much right. they, they're going to pierce the hearts and drain the dreams of so many people. But does it have to be that way if they get good treatment and they have a good plan? And so the myth that is that you're done, you know, like start planning, I have Parkinson's disease. And for a lot of folks who haven't had balance in their lives. And this is another thing that's going to blow your mind. And I tell you this out of complete honesty, for a lot of folks that we see who haven't had balance in their lives and get a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, it actually grounds them. They begin mm. to exercise. They begin to sleep better. They begin to carry themselves. Yeah, exactly. And and But right. also to create a strategy and to also see the meaning and see the purpose. And sometimes we're so driven in our lives, we don't see what's around us and we're not driving with purpose. And remember in Western medicine, we're always talking about, oh, can we cure everything and live forever? And in Eastern medicine, they talk about, can we live better? Can we heal? Can we interact with the with our environments? Can we see what's around us and appreciate those things? And so creating sort of, I like to think of it as a meld of Eastern and Western medicine for people so they can live their lives and have a meaningful life. I think think is so important with Parkinson. Well, Michael, when someone gets those four words, you have Parkinson's disease, what's the best advice that you would give them once they're diagnosed? What's the first thing they should do? Number one, first thing to do if you hear those words is to not assume that this is the end of the road. This is just an inflection point where there's going to be a bit of a change of direction in your life, but there's still going to be a lot of life in front and there's going to be meaningful life and you just need to get a plan. Okay. And so I stress the most, Barbara, about the plan. And the story I tell people is about my son who just turned 16 uh, yesterday, but when he was in first grade, the, the story goes that uh, he became a very good chess player 
And I'm not a bad chess player, but I've retired since playing my son. So in first grade, one night before before you know he went to bed, we, we played three games of chess and he just destroyed me. And in the third game, as he's beating me for the third straight time, he says to me, this is a first grader, he says, dad, you know what your problem is? And I said, no, Jack, what's my problem? And he said, your problem, dad, is, is you don't have a plan. This is from a first grader. Oh, my you God. You don't have a plan, okay? I sit down to play you. I have a plan, and I know what I'm going to do. And then when you do something I don't expect, and then I, I make a new plan, I have a plan, dad. You need a plan. Okay? Oh, my golly. And, and you think about it. It's it's profound from a first grader. Of course, he goes on to win. You know, his team went to the national championship and won two, two national championships. But oh that gosh. advice is, you know, was so important. It was so profound from a first grader. And I think to myself, this is what folks with Parkinson need. You know what? You just need a place where you can dock your ship. You can have a plan. You can realize it's dynamic. It's a changing disease, a place where you can check in and know, okay, I need to do these things and then focus on my life and not focus on, you know, all of these, you know, other things that can bring you down and keep you from having that great meaningful existence. And so we focus a lot, and maybe this is the wisdom of practicing medicine as well as being a researcher. The wisdom is is helping people to create that plan and that strategy. Well, I want to say happy birthday to Jack and thank him for teaching you about making a plan early on so we can help people do that when they get diagnosed with Parkinson's. It's so simple yet so profound. And then also just remember life is dynamic and it's changing. And my job is to worry for you. And, you know, perhaps that's your job too for what you do. And the, and it's it's so important. And the idea is, is, is that, look, the expertise is supposed to be with me. So you tell me what's going on and let's work together. And then you choose. I'm your cabinet advisor. You choose which direction that you want to take. But let's talk through and let's have some shared decision making and think about what the best, you know, next steps are. And sometimes for various reasons, people will take a step that that you think, wow, you know, I don't know, that's going to be a, you know, that's that's a tough step. And they will surprise you. That was the right step for them. And so I think you have to be humbled, help people along their road and along their path, find what's going to help them to achieve success. And everybody's definition of what success is is different. And when you get diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, having those formative conversations about what success is going to look like for you with this disease, what do you want to be able to do? And then as you have this conversation, people realize, oh my gosh, maybe I can do all the things that I really want to do. And so we all have to come to terms with that conception of where we want to be and where we can be. And it's that old adage of, you know, what do you Want. I find it more and more important to connect with people. And then one of the beauties of a practice of Parkinson is you want to see people frequently because things are going to change and you want to help them to adjust to those changes. And that's life. That's having a plan and, you know, of and being course. out in front. And once you have a plan, Barbara, your whole world with Parkinson's disease, all that worry just sort of goes from your head and you can just right. live your life. And it's so important for these folks. Well, on that note, Michael, how can family and friends best support a loved one with Parkinson's? What are the things we could say or do or help with? You know, one of the interesting things about dynamics with families and Parkinson's is to remember how important the unit is. It turns out 
that first of all, we know both from research and from experience that a lot of people try to hide their diagnosis of Parkinson for various reasons. It's very stressful. It turns mm-hmm. out to be very stressful. So thinking about that, and there might be reasons, you know, why with jobs or other things to think of, but helping people through that process, telling your family, telling your friends, telling your extended family, and then also the perception. And so when you have an illness, there is this perception, like, I don't want somebody to see me like with a cane, you know, or to see me limp or to see me. So you stop going out in public, you stop using things that might help you to navigate your life, but actually people around you want to see you use everything you can to get up that mountain. Right. We think of it as a thought distortion. Your mind distorts you into thinking everybody doesn't want to see me, you know, use these things. And it's like, actually, everybody wants to see you use everything you can to climb up Mount Azuris. If you wanted to get to another level, you're going to need a power bar. You're going to need oxygen. You're going to need things, you know, on your journey. And so helping people to understand that. And then the other thing, Barbara, is one of the things that is important to the outcome with Parkinson is how good your caregiver and care partner support is. Mm. And if you have poor caregiver or care partner support, you do less well with Parkinson's disease. And it can be dramatic. So when folks come in and we train a lot of people that in Parkinson, there aren't a lot of trained. It's just another story. There are only about 40 Parkinson specialists trained a year. And we train many at the University of Florida each year. And as the trainees come in, I think that they are surprised, impressed, befuddled that I spend so much time talking to the care partner or the caregiver because they come in and they're thinking, okay, here, I'm going to learn from this person that supposedly is an expert. And here he's spending all this time is the caregiver, how are you doing? Are you okay? You know, like, oh, and addressing the two together and saying, make sure you take care of each other and making sure there's social workers as part of that team. And then they come to learn from wisdom how important it is when you have a chronic disease to have that system uh, around you that is going to help you to to navigate. And it's it's super, super important. Well, Michael, so what resources or support groups have been helpful to patients and their caregivers? I know we can direct them to parkinson.org, other support groups or resources where you would suggest they reach out to get some help. You know, I think when I first started, you know, you think, okay, everybody goes to a support group and it turns out it's not a one size fits all. What people need needs to be tailored to what they need to be successful and and what's going to help them to feel supported. And for some people, that is a support group. But for other people, it's not. For people who are younger with Parkinson, and, and by the way, I haven't said this yet today, but I have folks in my practice who are in their teens, you know, that are really young with Parkinson. It becomes more common as you go up per decade. But, you know, somebody that's younger with Parkinson disease. So you've identified Parkinson's in teenagers? Absolutely. We see. I had no idea. It can can occur in all ages. And now imagine if you're looking for support for your Parkinson, Barbara, it's going to be different depending on your age your station, your job. And we used to push everybody into the same box, right? And even I did this. I mean, I'll tell you, we could have a whole hour about all the mistakes I've made and what I've learned (laughs) being a bedside clinician and a researcher. But, you know, it turns out that not everybody fits in the same box. And so helping people to figure out, like, is it this type of support group? Does it have the right ages? Uh, Is it people that you need? What type of support do you need? Some people, it's actually quite helpful to hook them up and to just 
just be seeing a licensed clinical social worker or a counselor once a month and a great strategy. And so figuring out how to put people with the resources and what resources are available to them in their communities. And I'm not just talking about zip codes here in the U.S. I have patients who are all over the world and the provision of care is very different. So figuring out how to get the right support system to the right person is important, but it's also a family unit. And I can't tell you, I can't stress to you enough how much time these days I spend trying to get brothers and sisters and relatives together to rally around. And and I'll just tell them, you know, like bridge differences. Now is the time to bridge the difference and try to come together, especially for your father or for your mother who has Parkinson and walk this journey together. And those that do that, and some will go to counseling themselves without the person with Parkinson, Mm -hmm. it actually sets them up for a great life themselves. And so there can be many victories along that road. And maybe just in improving family relations. A hundred percent. And, you know, one of the things people say, Zoom, you know, and Microsoft Teams and Skype and all these things, you know, you should see everybody in person. Well, not everybody can be seen in person. And then one of the cool things is, you know, we've been seeing folks in Manila and and other places for many years and very early versions of Skype and trying to help folks with Parkinson. And I figured out um, early on, and not I figured out, we figured out, you could get like whole bunches of different family members. So it's very common that I'm on a call on a Zoom call with a Parkinson, you know, and they're the the daughter's in North Dakota, the son is in New York, the sister is in New Mexico, and they're all together on the call at one time, which is virtually impossible otherwise. It's huge and getting these people to talk and getting them to converge and and they ask these questions and, and you say to yourself, why are they asking this question? Like it's maybe it's obvious to, to you, but it's not obvious to people how this works. And we all assume everybody knows how this works. Well, not everybody knows how this works. And so it's so important to just take that time to help people to meld together. There's an old Chinese uh, philosophy uh, by Lu Jun, and he talks about roads. And, and people that know me know I love his philosophy. And the philosophy is very simple, that there were no roads, and there are only roads when people walk on them. And we can choose to walk on them together and walk on make that road together. But when you have a new diagnosis of Parkinson, you know, you're going to walk a new road and we got to get on the road with those people and we got to get as many people around them to walk that road with them. And and it's part of the the strategy that is going to gonna help these folks. That's wonderful. On that thought and looking for future hope, if they can even get family relationships tighter, they find some balance in their own lives. What can you suggest as any new treatments or research findings that seem promising in the future? There's a whole bunch of, you know, really great things that are are going on both in our labs at UF, but also colleagues all over the, the world. And so there's a lot of excitement about understanding the different genetic forms of Parkinson, even though it's only 15 or 20%, these might unlock some therapies for other disorders. And we may be able to tailor to those specific genes, you know, so if you have this genetic disorder, we might be able to offer you this type of treatment for your Parkinson disease. And so there are now multiple trials that are what we call personalized medicine trials 
for folks. And when I think of Parkinson and I think of therapeutics and talk to Parkinson groups, I divide it into three buckets. One bucket is powerful symptomatic therapy. So there's all sorts of great new medications to help your symptoms. Surgeries okay. like deep brain stimulation that we've and others have developed over the years, you know, um, other therapies that are behaviorally based. And then there are therapies that are being offered now to try to slow disease progression. And so blow your mind, like what if we, you know, just slowed it down enough so another disease took you out? It's a little bit morbid, but, you know, think <laughs> about it. If you slowed it down, then something right. else would end. Right. And then once they correct that, then we'd have to come back up and then catch up and correct that problem. So we call those disease-modifying therapies. There's a whole bunch of those in trial. And then a lot of people are looking toward the cure bucket, the C bucket. And there aren't as many cures. And, and a lot of people will say, okay, give me all your money and we'll have a cure within five years. And they've said stem cells is going to cure Parkinson's disease. Well, I've been hearing this for 20 years, right? Mm. So we have to be careful with those types of claims. But I, I like to change the C to a P and think of it as the personalized therapy bucket because there's going to be personalized therapies based on genes. There's diets, there's inflammation, there's repurposing of drugs, there's new surgical techniques. And then there's several different things that are going on across laboratories to try to look at neuroimmunological approaches and approaches with different targets to try to change the way that that disease is going to progress. And so I think you're more into investment. So I would say I'm bullish on this, but at the <laughs> same time, I do want to caution people that there is sometimes this over-optimism where they're going to cure it in five years with stem cells or something like that. Stem cells are great. They're great for screening new drugs, but they haven't been the hope that many people have thought in Parkinson's disease, but there are things that are worth getting excited about. Well, thank you. Michael, you have educated us so deeply on Parkinson's disease and I say deeply, I know you think you just scratch the very surface and someday maybe we'll come back and have a deeper conversation. But what I've learned are there are motor and non-motor symptoms for Parkinson's. So not just tremors and 20% don't even have tremors. And there are other indications that they need to go and see their professionals and that there are commonalities of symptoms, but no two people experience Parkinson's in just the same way. And finally, exercise can help manage the disease, along with the choice of medication treatment and possibly surgery or other treatments that keep coming down the pike here. So, Michael, my final question for you is this, how do you keep your well and wealthy? Yeah, so great question. And one, it's very simple. You find something that you're passionate about and do it for as many minutes of the day as you can. And that's it. And every day when I wake up, I have joy in my heart. I love the people. I love working with folks that are doing things to try to impact lives. And so success for me is measured in how many lives I impact. It's not in how much money I make or how many books I write. It's how many lives can we impact. And so if I can wake up every day and I can just go to bed each night and say, well, I tried to impact some people's lives and maybe even think of a few people that we were able to create some impact, then that's great for me. I also read all the time, love to read, mm. love to travel, love history, and am addicted to podcasts as well. So, so, you know, being on a podcast is a lot of fun for me, but I think keeping balance and life and family is, is super important. And so it's, it's a good life, but I have to tell you, 
I feel blessed in that every day I wake up, I have joy in my heart, and I can only wish that for every student, for every person that I encounter. That I think that's the key. Figure out what you can do where you're going to have joy and create impact. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael Oaken. And it has been my joy to have met you. And you didn't mention this, but for the many books that you've written, how you donate the proceeds to charity. So thank you for bringing us up to date for all you do to reach out to Parkinson's patients, their loved ones, their support people, and you do make many differences in the world. So I thank you for that as well. Thank you. It's, it's been an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you. Please look for the podcast notes to find more information on the Parkinson's Foundation at parkinson.org and their podcast called Substantial Matters. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Keeping the Well and Wealthy with me as your host, Barbara Archer. If you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when I come out with a new podcast, it will show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask you to share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually helps others find the show. Again, thanks for listening today. From everyone at Hightower, this is Barbara Archer reminding you to go out in the world and make a difference. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hightower Wealth Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Hightower Wealth Advisors is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. 
information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity's specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.